Hey, this is Akuya Jamfi, and you're listening to TBB Talks, a podcast where we from the British Blacklist bring you our conversations with creative black folk from the UK and across the globe. We'll be talking to up and comings, headline popping, and the legends from screen, stage, music, and literature. Basically, if they're creative, we'll be talking to them. And we hope to shed some insight into their lives, the work that they choose, who their inspirations are, how they stay motivated, and more importantly, how they keep sane being black in the arts and entertainment world. I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm good. I saw Monsters and Men maybe a bit before Christmas. I mean, obviously the whole hype is that Drake is behind this film and all that type of stuff. But I like to go into a film with with minimum knowledge. And I was, um, I say pleasantly surprised, not pleasantly surprised, but I was was like, wow, this is a very powerful film, very quiet, very subtle, but yet had such an impact because I wasn't expecting that narrative. For our listeners, can you tell us what Monsters and Men is all about? It's about how a videotape of police brutality affects a community told through three different perspectives. And the perspectives we have in this film is a young Latino man who is trying to get his family together, get his life on track, and he witnesses somebody that he knows in the community get shot at the hands of the police. And then the second perspective we have is a police officer who was not there during the shooting but works in the same precinct as as the police officer that did actually pull the trigger and it's how his life within the police force is affected by these situations as well and then the third character we have in the film is a young african-american teenager who also lives in the neighborhood doesn't necessarily know the other two protagonists but they are all connected by this neighborhood and now by this videotape the perspectives that you see in the film are loosely inspired by people that i know and my upbringing that's how we sort of came to these three particular character uh, how to view this story through their lens see the the film tackles the gray area so why how did the story come to you and why now i made a short film in 2015 and it was a nine minute short film about a young african-american baseball player who was walking home from practice and gets stopped and pressed by the police you can see the scene in the film because it was based on the third character in the film in that short film i cast a real new york city cop a friend of mine who we grew up together in staten island uh very close to where eric garner got killed and that was my backyard. It was, you know, I literally delivered pizza in that area. You know, I knew that deli. I knew everything about that street. So we go to Sundance. We're celebrating that little short film. My police officer friend, who's an actor in the short, and we start talking about Eric Garner for whatever reason at 2 o'clock in the morning. And what I saw as a man that should be alive on that particular videotape, he was like, Ray, you know, it's unfortunate, but he was resisting arrest. You know, what started out as a normal conversation between friends ended in a pretty heated Of course. And what ended up becoming the dinner scene in the film. So that night was a real conversation I had with a real cop friend of mine. Mm. And I literally, like, it left the hairs on my skin standing up. I was taken aback. I was like, I can't believe anybody else can see anything other than the facts of this case, which is, like, this guy's getting, got a knee on his neck and... It was like, Ray, listen, it's unfortunate. I wasn't trained to do that. You know, New York City police officers aren't trained to do the chokehold. Like, that one police officer did it. And, like, why do I have to go get training because that one guy did something wrong? 
And so he was bringing up his sort of point. He felt like I was pointing the finger at him. He felt like I was kind of boxing him in with all with all cops. So I had to checkmate myself. You know, I didn't necessarily agree with him, but I felt like it was a point of view that I hadn't heard. You know, it was one of those conversations that just sat with me. And I tried to structure the film that way. It was like, I hope the film kind of sits with people. It makes them think long after the film is over. And that feeling I had, I knew that other people were going to feel the exact same way that I felt. Um, I think it's fair that you... It's so hard to say fair because I'm probably like you and like many other black people that see these deaths, these repeated deaths, and they seem inexplicable. They seem there's no way you can defend the police person in that position. But then somehow they either get off, they don't, they're not punished. And there's this whole, well, you know, we're not all bad and police aren't all racist. And it's very hard to pull back the lens on their experiences. And using uh, John David Washington, he plays a policeman. And um, it was interesting to see his conflict. But did you have you ever, have you had any backlash to people say maybe you're being apologist to the police narrative, even though I think you did a fair job in showing that? Because you didn't, I don't think you, to me, I felt like you didn't try and answer anything. You just left it there on the screen for people to make their own decisions. No, there hasn't been any backlash in the traditional sense. Listen, it's a controversial film anytime you're talking about race or politics. And so I think it's inherent in sort of the subject matter of it. People kind of come in either expecting one thing and getting something else. Sure. So you get a little bit of that. You get people that judge the film before they see it. And then either they're pleasantly surprised or they're disappointed. <laughs> you know, it's one or the other, but mostly positive. It's been mostly actually positive because I think it takes it out of that us versus them. It tries to show that there's a little bit of a common ground here that we're looking at. And I think we're trying to probe at the cyclical nature of these events. We're trying to probe at the institution you know, the bigger picture, and that we are saying that we have to look at the institution. It might be broken. There might be practices that are broken. Like, we have to do something about it. So I think for the most part, people see that, and I think they see the, this idea of that perspective as a way that opens up the dialogue and doesn't close it. And I think it offers more questions than answers. That was the intention of the film sort of a pass the baton to the audience. I've had some conversations, especially on the back of the recent R. Kelly documentary, how people are like, well, why does this thing exist? What's the solution? Where's the resolution? And we're then we're left to deal with the trauma of whatever we see on screen. Um, did you have any thoughts about that? I mean, obviously, that your intention was to like leave it to the audience, which I think is fair. But did you have any thoughts like, oh, maybe I need to offer some solution? Or maybe did even in making it, did you feel any resolution did you feel hopelessness because i think i've came away with like well this is the world as it is i'm not sure what i'm going to do next but this is the world as it is that's what i took from monsters and men so what did you maybe take away from making it did you have any thoughts about it having to have some answers at all i think there were certain connections in the film and in the script and we even shot certain things where like john david's character comes back and you know, not necessarily saves the day, but there were more connections. And I just felt like it was doing a disservice to these stories because a, a lot of these events aren't resolved. Yeah, um, I hear in you. Real life, and I just didn't want to button it up that way. It just yeah. didn't feel like, hey, I've found the solution to racism. We haven't. We haven't found the solution to these issues. And I felt like it was a conversation that was getting a little bit lost and brushed under the rug. Because you see it all the time, you become numb and immune to them. Oh, which case is that again? Is that in Baton Rouge or is that in... People's names are getting lost in this. It's yeah. like, Fernando Castillo, was that the one in Baltimore? You know, and we're talking about human lives. And I felt like I didn't want to button it up in that sense. But I was hoping, my hope in, in making the film, that we end on Zara's character. We end with a shot of him literally and figuratively 
with light at the end of the tunnel. You know, he's coming out, he's emerging, he's taking some stance. I was hoping that there is a feeling of hope a little bit yeah. in that direction, that there's a way forward. And I think the way the film is presented is that it's an individual action. You have choices. It's difficult. And we have a lot of our characters might take a step that we either understand. Okay, we understand why John David's character maybe doesn't do anything. That doesn't necessarily mean it's right. We can look at that. We can say, maybe you can. If you are a police officer, maybe there is something you can. He was given several choices. He chooses one in the film, but is that the right choice? Yeah, I think... Hopefully inspires folks to make certain choices that will help Effect change, I guess. And effect change. And so choosing the cast as a first time feature maker, obviously you have your wish list. How did you go about getting your cast and getting people to actually get on board and invest? It's a controversial story. It's a sensitive story. Even John David playing a police officer. But did you have these people in mind as the script came about or were they just like, wow, these people came through for the casting and this was perfect match? No, the short answer is I didn't have anybody in mind when right. I was making this. So, you know, I thought I was going to make the movie for little to no money. So it was always going to be a discovery. You know, I, I just thought I was going to have to find young actors and, and kind of do that thing. Uh, we were able to get a casting director on board who had some clout, had a lot of clout, actually. A.B. Kaufman, who's cast, you know, huge movies in, in Hollywood. And, and so I think that just legitimized the project. I had a legitimate casting director, all of a sudden people are saying, this film is important, we want to get a scene. Our film was also supported by a number of labs and institutions, and Sundance Institute being one of them, you know, was it kind of legitimized the price, like BFI or, you know, Tribeca, you know, gave it a little bit of clout, you know, and also, you don't get a lot of films tackling these issues, so I think anybody that's interested in these kind of stories were, like, chomping at the bit to be in it. It's young and a lot of roles for young people. So we knew we were going to have to find a couple of young folks that haven't had that much work experience because they're only of a certain age. So yeah, we got lucky. You know, uh, Anthony Ramos was off a Skype call. Um, I had seen his work in uh, a couple of independent films and, and uh, She's Gotta Have It. Yes, loved him. He, in that. he was off the Skype call. Uh, Spike Lee is a mentor of mine and I went to him to ask, uh, you know, John David's role was probably the meatiest in terms of, you know, being able to go after an actor, I guess. And he was the one that mentioned John David to me, but he hadn't shot uh, Black Clansman yet. So we actually shot Monsters and Men before Black Clansman. It just, his movie was released before our film came out. So it was interesting because I feel like we did the research in terms of making him a cop before he actually went on to do the other films. So yeah. It was great, but Spike was the one that really told me about John David. We met, we spent three weeks together uh, at the Sundance Director's Lab workshopping scenes from the film, and he absolutely crushed it. And so it was unpaid. He came out on his own. He really loved the role. He was inspired by it, wanted to be in it, and and the rest is history. And then Kelvin Harrison came from A.B. Kaufman, the, the casting director. She introduced me to Kelvin. I took one look at the kid, and he was just right. It came from everywhere, you know, literally from Facebook and social media, from tweets, like wherever I saw someone that I thought was interesting, you know, we were casting from a combination of actors and non-actors in the film. There's real New York City police officers in the movie who play cops. It's balanced in that way. We wanted it to feel authentic. We wanted it to feel real. We also wanted the film to have some grace and feel elevated slightly out of the indie. We wanted it to hopefully cross over and have people from the mainstream. Appeal to a wider audience as well as the, it being a, a gritty indie film. So you mentioned Spike Lee being a mentor and you've also worked with Cassie Lemons, a wonderful director behind East Bio and yeah. the upcoming Harriet film. So I work with, um, or my platform 
worked with a lot of British black creatives who are at the starting point of their career. And one thing that, that always comes up is having mentors and actually knowing how to work with your mentors. Well, I mean, how did you utilize what you learned being in Cassie's presence and Spike Lee's presence and other peers of note? How did you utilize that into helping you get the best out of them being in their presence and putting that into your career development? Yeah, well, I went to NYU Tisch Graduate Film School, and that's right. where I first met uh, Spike. He teaches there. He teaches a third-year yes. class. And then he offers office hours outside of the classroom. And you can sign up, I think, once a week during that particular semester. You know, and then there's like 10 slots, so you have to get there first. Oh, I always just got there first. I was like, I'm going to be that kid. <laughs> that's like standing by the door. If you could do that for a pair of Jordans, I'm definitely going to do that to sit down with Spike Lee. For sure. I'm spending 300 grand to go to school. Like, I I need to have <laughs> yeah. So, like, Spike is a learn by doing. He's not going to tell you what to do. He's going to go out and make a movie. That's how you do it. You ask Spike about advice on writing. He's like, right. <laughs> I'm like, wait, but what about, like, is there some kind of formula? He's like, the formula is right. <laughs> you know, he's a fan of very few words. So it's what you take from how he approaches his own work. But he's not going to, like, put in the calls for you. I think his way of helping you is letting you help yourself. So that's what I learned from Spike. I definitely tried to be around him, but you know he's such a very different filmmaker. But if you ask him a question, he'll answer it. So mm-hmm. that's how I realized our relationship is like, okay, how can I ask as many questions as I can so that he can answer? That's just the way Spike is. So it's like, hey, Spike, do you have any suggestions on this? Okay, cool. You know, so he'll give very brief, very short, but he will answer and he will watch anything you show him. So if you're like, can you watch my short film? He'll give you feedback that way, you know, and and he's been supportive. He sent me a text message and say, you know, the class loved your film. Like he's watching everything. You just don't know he's watching. (laughs) And then Casey is, I think she just finished her film, Harriet. Yes. I was her assistant for a short, for one semester in film school. And so, you know, just watching how she was able to sort of balance her career, her family, and teaching, and then going out and making film and television on, like, on the side. <laughs> it was like amazing. It was like, how, do, how does she do all of this? It was kind of incredible to me. Um, but Casey's one of the most brilliant people I've ever met. She also works at Sundance Institute pretty much every year. She is very involved in a handful of things. So I think she just has a very collaborative approach to how she brings up a lot of her students and by providing either opportunities for them to go on and do certain things she is also like take from me what you will ask me anything and i'll answer it you know these are very very busy people with full slate and the fact that they remain open you know but you have to kind of go after it you have to ask the questions you have to put yourself in that position but i think both casey and spike remain very very open and created a legacy of young talent that have come up behind them that they support it you know, and that's what they do. They're building a pipeline and also leading by example. They haven't retired. <laughs> they are still there. They're the still active in the mix with it. They're so active. And that's what's that's what is so special and what makes them mentors because they're saying, This job is not finished. This is a lifetime. You're building a body. Go and get yours. I wanted to quickly ask you about Top Boy. You just wrapped Top Boy UK. Can you just tell me what to expect and what was your experience of London like? Uh, yeah, I mean, Top Boy 3, I think, will be an incredible comeback. I think people are going to really respond to 
the writing, the characters. You'll see some old faces, but you'll see some uh, real new talent. I think it's a very special show. I think Netflix is going to really, is going to pop with the show, you know, and I'm not just saying it because I'm a part of it. I think the writing is brilliant and the cast is really, you know, uh, spectacular. How did you acclimatize to telling a British type story? Well, I think they, uh, when I say they, you know, Ashley and Kano and some of the lead cast, they embraced me and took me around. We spent months going into the estate and talking to tons of people on the ground. It's their story, and I've always approached it that way. And I think just keeping that collaborative, open approach, they bring knowledge and history to this show, and it's their show. You know, I just felt like a conduit in the process, you know, to help them realize their vision and then bring sort of a new and heightened aesthetic to it. That's something that I felt like I could bring back. And Jan Dimage is an EP on the film, Ronan Bennett, you know, and then obviously Drake and uh, Spring Hill, which is LeBron James's company is involved. So yeah, there's a, there's a lot of heat behind the project. There's a lot of people that want to see it succeed. And I was embraced and hopefully you'll see that breathing in the new series. Um, thank you okay. so much. I really appreciate speaking to you. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.